0: The dead won't bother me. It's the living you got to worry about. If I couldn't keep them there with me whole, at least I felt that I could keep their skeletons. How y'all doing today? (laughs) God, okay. Uh, Welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. (laughs) <laughs> i'm janelle
1: <laughs> i'm vicky I'm not doing that voice
0: sorry i was i was channeling yellowstone
1: oh is did that I what that yellowstone? is yeah no never watch see trailers for it but <laughs> that's a that's I I pretty good I exactly think I what i imagined the whole show is i think i did pretty good <laughs> my god that's so silly mm-hmm. this Is this your first time listening a special hello to you <laughs> uh ignore that top of the show don't ignore it no no that's pretty much how this goes uh Uh, we got a great show for you today i would say just love to be
0: kevin costner on occasion you know what can you do (laughs)
1: um well we can head over to the newsroom let's do that how about that i'll put my kevin costner to bed Our news story this week comes from probably one of your all-time favorite places, Janelle. Cincinnati. It's not Florida. No, Cincinnati. <laughs> Cincinnati. You know the Cleveland girl, bitch. <laughs> um. So, 44-year-old Lisa Nacrelli was arrested and charged with child enticement. Um, after a family reported that she went to their home and tried to get their son to go with her claiming that she was from CPS. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they talk about, um, and the child is like young, four years old. Mm. Okay. So she... After they saw the video of what happened, um, because they had like ring doorbell cameras, I think, you know, something (laughs) like that. Um, They saw that she was like out talking to their son for like a minute before he came and got them, like probably five minutes of her like putting his arm around her, putting her arm around him, like, you know, touching his hair. And then the son came in and said, hey, there's a woman out here who wants to talk to you. And she introduced herself um, as Lisa from CPS. (laughs) I'm um, saying that she wanted to come in the house for an inspection. Somebody had filed a complaint, but they, when she left, she didn't leave any of her contact info. So they didn't, they were like, this is really kind of weird. So they looked at the cameras and that's when they found this. Um, they also called CPS and had them look into it. And they were like, yeah, this is not a person that yeah, we there's
0: have no Lisa here. at CPS.
1: Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's very, very, very creepy. Um, There is this article from WCPO Cincinnati does say that a handwritten statement from McCrelly filed in court documents says she'd been drinking since waking up that day. So you're going to steal a child and pretend you work for CPS? Yeah. (laughs) Um, So the affidavit, according to the article, the affidavit says, quote, I walked to Kroger to get more beer on the walk home. I saw a young child that I felt wasn't being supervised. So in an attempt to scare the parent, I pretended to be from CPS.
0: I mean, that's a choice.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the family, of course, is saying that she she asked her son, their son, at least three times to come home with her. Um, So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, she's also looking at um, impersonating an officer in burglary. Um, she has been arrested before, charged with disorderly conduct in 2005 and public intoxication in 2011 mm. and is currently being held on $10,000 bond. But like that's some scary shit. And yeah. kudos to the family for placing a call to CPS to be mm-hmm. like, to verify is this shit. legitimate? Yeah. So be careful out there, y'all. Not everybody is who they say they are. Next, we're gonna move on to Netflix and Kill, where this week we are talking about King of Clones. Have you watched this yet? No. <clears throat> I've been in a
0: Vanderpump Rule. Yes. Hole, so no. <laughs> yeah, so
1: so we talked before uh recording. I was like, I don't know if you've seen this because I'm pretty sure it came out like two days ago mm-hmm. as we record, and I watched it the morning like this morning. Um, so this is a very interesting um documentary. It looks at a genetic researcher, Wang Wusuk, Dr. Wang, um, from Korea. He's from South Korea. He really became this sort of pioneer in the field of genetic cloning. Starting with animals, he uh has done racing camels dogs sheep pigs his company alone has has cloned hundreds of dogs and so they were attempting to clone humans well okay yes some there was a whistleblower at the lab that he was working with saying that the uh human embryos that they were obtaining to run their um what do they call it embryonic they were doing a lot of embryonic stem cell research, okay. um, and he was, like, promising people in wheelchairs that they were going to walk again. I mean, like, this type oh, of that's shit. A, yeah, yeah, that's a stretch. <laughs> so the whistleblower came out and said that actually um, Dr. Wang had illegally obtained human embryos. A lot of times from his own graduate students, and then lied and manipulated some of the data that was coming out in regards to their cloning uh, results. Super sciencey, bro. <laughs> yeah. So he does get um, charged with, there was like an ethical violation, but I think he got charged with embezzlement and fraud. And he, Essentially serves, it's like a year in prison, I think, and is now currently residing in the UAE um, where he does work a lot with racing camels um, because that's big in like the, yeah, that's big over there in the UAE. So like, yeah, it's just this really interesting look at one, the cloning field and sort of the arguments for and against, right? Mm -hmm. He was revered as this like, celebrity essentially because Mm. he really was like leading in um the genetic field not just in south korea but like around the world and so i think there was a certain amount of um overlooking and just like blind trusting that Mm. both the government and the public was willing to do um and especially this whistleblower got really like nailed by a lot of people like he was uh Traitor to his boss. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. he was the bad guy in all of this because the public um who supported the genetics research was like, um, why are you trying to stifle this innovation? Blah, 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 blah. But like, y'all, it's not innovation. (laughs) No, and you're it's dangerous. And Mm -hmm. frankly, harvesting eggs is like Fucking painful. Yeah. um, And not an easy thing to do. It could cause infertility if that woman ever wanted to have kids again. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I mean, there's a lot of. An ethical breach
0: taking eggs from people that work for you. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. (laughs) That old thing. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So it's, I think it's a really interesting documentary because it does look at some of these, you know, ethical questions, I Mm -hmm. think, Um, but also the idea of. Somebody trying to, in the science world, sort of defraud the system, right? We just saw this with Elizabeth Holmes and how she just blatantly um, changed and manipulated data. Yeah. Um, like, that is so harmful to people who are actually trying to do legitimate research. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really frustrating because it does more harm than good, ultimately. Um, but definitely worth a watch, I would say. Again, it's like uh, another like hour and a half, actual like documentary mm-hmm. film, not like a series. So definitely check it out. It's called King of Clones on Netflix. Um, no, it's worth watch. <laughs> <laughs> all right, our show may not be appropriate for all listeners. Um, oh yeah. This one's a big one. This one's <laughs> a big one. Lots of bad stuff. Do you know what are we talking about today?
0: Well, you know me. I just can't escape going out west.
1: It's true. <laughs> it's true. I'm starting to sense a theme here. I'm trying just to escape
0: my own reality. Yeah. You know? Just like I want to be one of those horses that ran away and is now a wild pony. In uh, I feel that. I in Yellowstone, you know? Yeah. Yeah, speaking of Yellowstone, I've been watching that show way too much. I can tell, and that's why
1: we're going to be looking at murders in Montana. Nice, the Big Sky. Gun. I can confirm. I do not talk about Mormons in this one. Well, fuck. Okay.
0: <laughs> um, I don't know what to do now. I know. I know. What are we <laughs> going to do?
1: Throw in a Mormon fact at
0: the end. <laughs> do
1: it. Talk so, about the hat.
0: Right. <laughs> um, this story is going to take place in the 1970s in Montana um on january twenty fourth, nineteen seventy three, the Jaeger family, we're going to go back to a camping trip scenario. Okay. was on a camping trip near the Missouri Headwaters State Park area near Three Forks, Montana. Okay, so a really big camping area. Um, it was mom, Dad, older brother, middle sister, and younger sister Susan. At four am, thirteen year old Heidi uh, woke up to a draft coming into the tent. When she got up, she noticed that there was a hole cut into the side of the tent, and her younger sister, Susan, was missing.
1: Oh, no. Zero to ten. You're jumping right into
0: it (laughs) today. Mm -hmm. She woke her parents up immediately, and everyone went outside into the night to look for Susan. Um, A few feet from the tent, they found Susan's stuffed animal, who she always sleeps with. Their father, Bill, um, got into the car and drove to the nearest phone and alerted authorities while the family continued to stay and look around the campsite. Um, Because this was federal property in a state park, they alerted the FBI. (laughs) And Special Agent Dunbar was the first to respond to the area and put into place the largest, like, manhunt, I guess, for uh, a missing person in the history of Montana.
1: Wow. Up until this
0: point. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The National Guard was next called in. They brought in helicopters. They brought in boats to look into the areas of the river and the um, lakes that were over there. They even went as far as to bring in infrared equipment to search the local mine shafts to see maybe if she had made her way down there. Okay. Now, because the tent was cut, they were assuming this was a kidnapping. The only evidence that was found at the scene was footprints from the tent leading to a car park that was nearby. Okay. So they were very adamant that this was probably a kidnapping. Yeah. Three days later, a man called one of the FBI regional offices in Denver, Colorado, claiming that he kidnapped Susan and demanded $25,000 in ransom.
1: All right. Mm-hmm.
0: On July 2nd, the county sheriff's department received a similar call. This time, the kidnapper kidnapper demanded $50,000. And to kind of, you know, state that he was the real person, he described Susan Yeager's appearance, pointing out that she had... Um, interesting, like, uh, fingernails on her index finger. And um, this was later confirmed by her relatives saying that she kind of had, like, a deformed fingernail on her index finger. Okay. Initially, police agreed that they were going to transfer the ransom money to kind of, you know, do a bait-and-switch-catch situation. Yeah. Um, So they did collect the money, and they did come to uh, agreement on a drop-off point, and nobody showed up. Okay. On September 24th, the kidnapper called back uh, to the Yeagers' house this time and talked to Susan's older brother, 16-year-old Daniel. Who did Um, they call the first time? The police? They called the FBI agent office in Colorado and then the county sheriff's office. Okay, okay. He stated that he had previously called the sheriff and the FBI uh, to kind of prove that it was him. Yeah. Now, by this time, the uh, house was like wiretapped in hopes that they would have him call the house. And so they were able to record this and they were able to kind of trace it to a uh, gas station in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Okay. Despite being able to find the location, there was no cameras or witnesses saying that there was a man in the area. Sure. Using the payphone. The case went cold for about a year when the kidnapper called back again. For approximately an hour, he talked with Susan's mother, Marietta, during which he kept stating the appearance of Susan, all the previous phone conversations he had, saying that he wasn't going to be able to bring her back,
1: Okay, which is
0: very ominous. Yeah. A few days later, authorities um, contacted a man named Ralph Green in the Three Forks area where Susan had been taken. Green reported an invoice for a phone call made on June 25th, which he had not made. So, he basically stated that his phone called somewhere that he did not make the phone call. Oh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. While investigating the telephone cables, policemen found a voice gateway and another device that were built into the line, which they suspected Susan Eager's kidnapper had used. So, he tapped someone else's phone line and used it
1: oh is that what a voice gate is like yeah. a way to bypass so splitting like... off a phone line oh, okay yeah. okay so he split
0: off a phone line wow yeah that's like some high-tech shit um now during this time the fbi was in the early stages of criminal profiling okay and this case was one of the first that they would use this new technique for Ooh. Yes. So, using this criminal profiling information, several profilers from the FBI were um, compiling information and trying to get an idea of what this person was. So, by their estimation, the suspect was uh, age 25 to 30, white male, probably local to the area with a background in telecommunications or the military, and most likely a social outcast who had problems interacting with other people. Okay. Eight months after Susan went missing... A 19-year-old named Sandra Smalligan was kidnapped from the same area. The police discovered that the victim's car mm-hmm. was missing. They started by um, searching for the missing vehicle. Um, an officer discovered the uh, vehicle in an abandoned farm. They noticed that there was a pair of underwear in the car. Okay. And it was placed inside of a barn out of eyesight. Hmm. Um, The car was underneath a uh, tarp and had the license plate removed, so they had to identify it via a VIN number. Upon investigating the property surrounding the area, they found a barrel which had burned fragments inside of it. Upon further investigation of the burned fragments, they located human teeth in the ash pile. Oh, no. They sent the teeth to a forensic lab, and they were able to get Sandra Smulligan's dental records, and a few uh, weeks later were able to confirm that the remnants inside the barrel were, was Sandra Smulligan. Oh, no. Now, investigators were asking around the Three Forks area and a couple people stated that there was a local that was a little bit weird named David Meyerhofer and they kind of said he's the local weirdo, so like maybe you should check out him. You know, like he's a little strange. Um, Meyerhofer was born in Bozeman, Montana, one of five children. After he graduated from high school in 1967, he worked several odd jobs before being drafted into the Army in 1968. Okay. He enlisted in the Marine Corps on October 1st, spending the next few months in San Diego as part of the Signal Corps. After completing basic training, he was sent to Cherry Point where he was dispatched to Vietnam. Okay. Um, he worked in the 5th Communications Battalion.
1: Oh. So they
0: did phone line rigging. Okay. Dispatches. Some prior experience. Uh-huh. For his achievement in deploying communications systems and controlling military um, uh, formations during an armed assault, he was awarded the National Defense Service Medal, the Vietnam Service Medal, and the Vietnam Campaign Medal. In August of 1971, he returned to the United States where he continued his military service at the Marine Corps base in Camp Pendleton. And in 1973, Meyerhofer was honorably discharged from the Marine Corps, which he returned to Montana. Okay, Interesting. Hmm. Now, the profiler stated that sometimes kind of criminals will disassociate. They could possibly be like schizophrenic or – you know, they like to lie, they can pass a polygraph test. So the profiler was kind of narrowing in a little bit more information with each passing month and with each phone call that they were receiving. And they postulated that on the one year anniversary of Susan's kidnapping, that they would get a phone call. Now, they wanted to encourage this, so Marietta gave an interview to the news where she said that she had a strong religious belief and that she felt sorry for the person who took Susan. Okay. She even went as far to say during the interview that she wants to speak with him. Oh. So, on the one-year anniversary of Susan's kidnapping, Marietta received... No phone call during the day, oh, and man. so she went to go to bed and was woken at 3.30 by the phone ringing.
1: Oh, my gosh. I can't believe they called that. One That's year wild.
0: to the minute the kidnapper took Susan, he made contact to the Jager home.
1: I cannot believe that they called that. That's <laughs> crazy.
0: <laughs> he told Marietta a bunch of intimate information about Susan again and then hung up. Um, the call was too short to be traced. Yeah. Then he phoned again a little while later. Marietta, let, Marietta kind of let him start talking and tried to keep him on the line as much as possible.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He boasted that he was too smart to be caught. Although she asked him several times, he refused to let her speak to the daughter. Okay. He mm. did say that he could still not bring her back. Mm. Instead, he said he was traveling with her. Right. And she was not far from them. I'm sure. Marietta started to kind of take over the conversation, trying to be more compassionate, trying to, like, change the tune to get him to trust her. Yeah. And they were on the phone for an hour. Okay. So they were able to get a little bit more information on the location. So the police did take the people in Three Forks' uh, advice, and they looked into David Meyerhofer. And they contacted him about where he had been traveling to. And he said, you know, he was here and there around Wyoming, blah, blah, blah. They were able to successfully place him in Wyoming in September of 1973 after finding a receipt from an auto repair shop in Cheyenne, stating that he had been there on September 24th, the day the call to the Yeager family was made, which is where they were able to trace the phone call originally.
1: Okay. So they
0: placed him there. Okay. Based on the evidence of this phone call, Meyerhofer was arrested in August of 1974 and bought in for interrogation. He claimed he was not at all involved with the kidnapping in an attempt to prove his innocence, he agreed to an interrogation with sodium pentothal. Oh Our old my god sodium penatol, if you're not familiar, is considered on the street as truth serum. Yo, I just okay. <laughs> the results of the polygraph were proved to be inconclusive. So
1: yeah. I irrelevant. Mean, you all know how you feel about polygraphs anyway.
0: Yeah. And then <laughs> when you throw sodium pentothal, on the Yeah, your right. Nose. Because they lacked any additional solid evidence to keep him in custody, they had to let him go without any charges. Mm. The investigators did record the conversation that they had with him and then did a voice lineup with Susan's mother, Marietta. Oh. Plot twist.
1: That's a good idea. She
0: was able to identify the caller as David Meyerhofer.
1: Wow. Okay. Okay.
0: They couldn't bring him in right away, so they waited to see if he would call again, and he fucking did. Of course he did. So this time they recorded it again and were able to include he made the call where he made the call and matched the phone-like conversation to David Meyerhofer. Okay. They brought him in to interrogate, and while Meyerhofer was detained in Gallatin County Jail in Bozeman, authorities began to search his house and his car. They found bloodied women's clothing, Poorly washed out blood stains in the car. Oops. And then the piece de resistance a hand and several fingers in the refrigerator. Oh my gosh.
1: Oops. Yikes.
0: They brought Meyerhofer in to interrogate and just kind of did the old trick where you pass some photos across the table and they're like, oh, this is your house. This is some blood. These are some fingers in your fridge. Uh, and yeah, yeah. he immediately. Confessed to kidnapping and killing Susan Yeager, as well as 19-year-old Sandra Smolligan. Wow. I'll spare you the details of how he murdered them because it's just not the point and it's brutal. I appreciate that. And we just don't need to know how a child died right now. You know? Yeah. Um, Yep. So they were able to um, eventually locate her body, but... In an interesting kind of twist a little bit here, Meyerhofer's defense attorney brokered a plea deal involving a confession of two additional murders that he had not originally been linked to to kind of get the death penalty off the table. Mm -hmm. One was the death of 13-year-old Bernard Pullman, who had been shot at Three Forks in March of 1967 while swimming with a friend. Police um, initially kind of stated that the It could have been an accident incident um, from local hunters, like a random bullet. Yeah. Um, But nope, he confessed. He actually shot that child from a distance. Okay. Um, The second murder was that of a 12-year-old Boy Scout, Michael Rainey, who had been beaten at the Three Forks outdoor practice area in 1968. A Boy Scout kind of camp. Yeah, yeah. It is suspected that he committed more than those crimes, but he did not confess to anything further at the time. And so they were brokering that deal to get him life in prison by confessing to all four of these murders. But four hours after giving the confession and signing the plea deal, Meyerhofer was found dead in his jail cell, having hanged himself with a towel. Yo. Now, the jail had not been informed that Meyerhofer was a murder suspect, so he was not put on suicide watch. Oh. Sheriff Andy Anderson (laughs) was formerly... What a name. Dumb. Was censured by county officials for the suicide. Wow. And in the next election, um, he'd served for sheriff for two decades. He was voted out of office because of the Meyerhofer suicide incident.
1: I'm kind of surprised because it takes a lot for them to censure a sheriff. Like, (laughs) sheriff's pretty much... Just kind of do whatever without any consequences, unfortunately. Yeah. So that's kind of surprising to me.
0: The case was officially closed, but there is no reason or motivation given for the murders. And it's really unclear how many other people he killed. Yeah. Yeah. On an even weirder note, which I may cover in the future, uh, David Meyerhoffer had a brother named Alan Meyerhofer, who was arrested in 1986. For a string of child rapes near Seattle, Washington. Ooh. Yikes. Um, so we're gonna say to be must continued. be something in the genetics. <laughs> yeah. To be continued. Oh my gosh. But that is <sighs>
1: the It gives me heebie jeebies.
0: Yep, that's the case. Mm. <sighs>
1: So I am going to talk about Wayne Nance. Um, and there's a very specific reason why I chose this that we'll talk okay. about at the end. Okay. Um, and it's not about Mormons. It's, <laughs> I know. Now I'm like, did I drop in a Mormon fact in here? I, <laughs> I really don't think I did. Um, all of these I wrote in a haze. So mm-hmm. I don't even
0: remember what this is. Not. I'll give us a Mormon fact at the end all if right. you
1: don't. Okay. Okay, so Wayne Nance was originally born in 1955 in Missoula, Montana. Both of his parents worked. His father, George uh, Edwin, was a long-haul driver, and his mother, Charlene May, was a waitress. The family lived in a mobile home outside of town, and I saw uh, in more than one place that Nance was described as, like, a latchkey kid. Um, Typical. Mm -hmm. Typical, yeah. You know the life. (laughs) I do know the life, unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, He did excel in school, but he also, like, had a really short temper, and he was nevertheless described as, like, a well-liked person, but... Was also kind of strange. Like he's kind of this, you know, dual person. <laughs> mm-hmm. Although it appears he was viewed as sort of a uh, delinquent in his younger years. His real, real bad shit uh is believed to have started in 1974 at the age of 19 when Nance attacked 30 39-year-old Donna Lorraine Pounds. Donna lived not far from Nance, just kind of up the road a little bit. And when she got home in April 1974, he, uh, she had discovered that Nance had actually snuck into her home and was waiting for her. Um, Nance had stolen Donna's husband's 22 Luger and immediately attacked Donna, tying her to a bed with clothesline um, that he had brought with him He then uh, raped her, took her down to the basement, and she was shot five times in the back of the head. Um, And then he leaves. Donna's husband, Harvey, comes home a little later, discovers his wife in the basement, and immediately calls police. Now, during their investigation, police get reports that the neighbors had witnessed Nance around the home on the evening of the murder. But it wasn't something that was super unusual because he lived in the area. So it's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not like... That was a weird thing. They did also find bloody underwear in the home, but they, uh, the underwear had been washed before they had been found, and they weren't really sure where it came from, whose blood it was. They weren't really able to determine any of that. So their investigation actually pretty quickly turned towards Donna's husband, uh, Harvey Pounds, because... It turns out that he was having an affair at the time of his wife's murder. But okay. yeah, yeah. Which, of course, I mean, they always consider like the family members first. Mm-hmm. Um, but frankly, if you're having an affair when your wife is murdered, then it doesn't look good mm-hmm. to say the least. It
0: looks very bad.
1: Yeah. Not great timing on that. But the case went, pre- went cold pretty quickly. After that, just due to a lack of evidence. So shortly after Donna's murder, Nance joined the military service. Ours have a lot of similarities. Fucking military fucks you up, man. (laughs) Um, He was in the military service in the Navy from 1974 to 1977. If you don't sing in the Navy in your head when you say that. In you, the name. Right, are you even living? We can sail the seven seas. <laughs> You're <Yeah>. welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Um, he was eventually discharged after he was discovered with LSD marijuana and some other stolen items. He
0: sounds like a good time a little bit
1: at that time. No. No, <laughs> no, ASD? dude. I mean, stolen maybe, but items? what are the stolen items? Uh, snacks. Cigarettes. <laughs> oh. And I think I think I think there was some like tools or weapons, like some kind of like tools. If you're stealing it from the
0: the navy, uh, the weapons. mm, Yeah, that's a
1: little suspect. (laughs) Uh, Just after just five years after Donna Pound's murder, rail workers discovered the body of a young woman while on a slow-moving railway. Uh, The body had been decomposing for quite a while and was found near I ninety. Uh, authorities were unable to identify the remains and so they gave her the name Betty Beavertail which I'm sorry what <laughs> yeah because they were using it as an indication of where the body was found so i think it was like beavertail pond was like mm-hmm. right by where she had f- was found and this is something that will become a theme throughout this whole story is they would give these unidentified victims names that was like a first name and then the location of where so the body that's so fucking was found. weird so you, you, that's how where you get Betty Beavertail,
0: not just Jane Doe. No,
1: Jane Doe Beavertail. Yeah, right. Jane Beavertail. Right. Like what? I don't know. Yeah. What that, the fuck. Yeah. <laughs> so she. That was Betty Beavertail. Um, the remains were eventually that identified. Seems almost more disrespectful. I know. To me. We'll just wait. Oh, God. Fuck. Okay. That. Yeah. <laughs> um, the remains were eventually identified later eventually it was a, it was, yeah, it, was a, it was a couple years later and they were identified as 15 year old devonna nelson who had gone missing in 1978 so by 1984 nance had started a relationship with a young woman who people really she was going by the an alias her name was robin that's kind of what people knew her as um after they had been dating for a bit they decided to leave town assuming they wanted to start a family, like, start fresh, you know, somewhere else. However, this did not come to fruition. Um, So this is from Morbidology, quote, Just shy of three months later, a wildlife photographer trudging through the woodland of Missoula came across a grisly scene. Poking out from the earth was a human foot. End quote.
0: God damn it. What is with you and limbs coming out of places, Vicki?
1: <laughs> I listen. <laughs> I don't do this stuff, okay? You're I just report like, it on Mormons it. Mormons and I know. limbs sticking I know. out of places. <laughs> uh, so obviously they called police. Uh, and when they arrived, they discovered Robin's remains and determined that she had been shot in the head three times. Again, um, Robin wasn't her real name and police were not able to match her description to any missing person reports that were out at the time. So they gave her the moniker Debbie Deer Creek. Fuck this. (laughs) Her remains wouldn't be identified until 2006 when they used DNA testing to find out it was 16-year-old Marcella Sherry Bachman. So, just over a year later, in September 1985, more skeletal remains were discovered in West Missoula by a bear hunter. It's hunters. Yeah. <laughs> hey, there's lots of, like, wildlife. There's work. lots of wildlife yeah. in Montana. <laughs> Investigators determined that the remains were female and that she had been shot twice in the head. They didn't find any personal items near her body and, again, were unable to identify her at that time. So, she received the moniker Christy Crystal Creek. Yeah, I, I know. I hate this. What's <laughs> with the alliteration, too? If it were, literally, it were literally anything else than, like, you know, Jane Doe names, I would be like, okay, this is kind of okay. But, like, the fact that it's Jane Doe names is, like, kind of fucked up. It's, it's weird. It's weird and I don't like yeah. it.
0: Um,
1: so this woman would actually not be identified until 2021. Um, When she was finally identified using DNA as 23-year-old Janet Lee Lucas, they discovered that she was originally from Spokane, Washington, but had actually disappeared from Sandpoint, Idaho. Now, just after – a year after Lucas was discovered, in December 1985, the Shook family, Mike, Teresa, and their three kids were eating dinner when there was a loud – I saw it sometimes described as violent knock on the door – Mike answered the door and was immediately attacked by Nance, who stabbed him to death with a butcher knife. The fuck? (laughs) Yup. Yeah. He then attacked Teresa, took her to the bedroom where she was tied up, raped, stabbed to death as well. Nance then left the home, came back two hours later to steal some items from the home. He then set fire to the house using crumpled magazines and furniture that he had stacked underneath the stairs Luckily, um, the neighbors saw the fire happening and rushed in, and they were able to pull out all of the children who did survive, although they were obviously treated for smoke inhalation immediately afterwards, Mm -hmm. and both of their parents were dead. You know, that's not great, obviously, but...
0: Were they, like, really, really?
1: Yes. It was, like, uh, two, four, and five or six, I think. Yeah, it was, like, young, young. When authorities investigated afterwards, there was no indication whatsoever that Nance was involved in the double murder. Right, Absolutely not. Yeah. Now, Nance easily returned to a quiet life. He got a job at a local <laughs> furniture store. Yeah, he just kind of like blended back into the background, um, was working at th- at a furniture store as a delivery driver. Now, his manager at the time, Chris Wells, was a married woman who Nance had sort of like Developed a crush on while he was working there. This all kind of came to a head. I saw interviews where they were talking about people, talking with people who worked at the store, and they were kind of like, Yeah, it was not really a secret that he was like into her, but mm-hmm. obviously she's married and like,
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so this work all work wife. <laughs> work wife. Yeah, right. Uh, so this all sort of came to a head when Nance decided to creep outside of their house. <sighs> This is why I, like, never tell people where I live. Right? In September 1986, Chris and her husband Doug, uh, they were arriving home around midnight. And when they got there, Doug was like, I think I see somebody, like, creeping around our house, looking in our windows. So he went to go walk around the house to uh, check it out and investigate. And what he found was Nance hiding in the bushes – So Nance is like, wait, hold on a second. I was driving past your house and I thought that I saw someone looking into the windows too. Like I, and so I wanted to make sure. Yeah. So he said that he was inspecting the house to make sure everything was okay, that they were safe, that there wasn't somebody creeping around the property. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Nance at that point asked Doug if he could go and grab a flashlight to like help him look. And as soon as Doug turned around to go, uh, inside, Nance hit him on the back of the head with the butt of a gun and a struggle ensued. Okay. So Chris comes running out to see what's going on because she hears this whole commotion happening. And it was about that time that Nance, uh, pulled the gun, pointed it in her direction, forced her to tie up her husband, um, before she herself was tied up and taken to the bedroom and tied to the bed. Nance then forced Doug to the basement where he tied Doug's neck to a pole and then stabbed him in the chest with an eight-inch butcher's knife, just barely missing his heart and leaving him to die, essentially. However, Doug did not, in fact, die in that moment. So the love keep him going. <laughs> Honestly, I have no idea. For the love of his life keep him going? Straight up, his hands and feet were tied and his neck was tied to the pole and he had an eight-inch butcher knife in his chest, right? Despite all of this, he somehow manages to free himself from his restraints and fetch his Savage 250 rifle. Yes. Okay. Now, this is again from Morbidology, quote, he staggered up the stairs and confronted Nance. Doug shot Nance once in the side, and he dropped to the ground. As Nance emptied, uh, attempted to get back up, Doug began to batter him with the rifle. He continued to do so until Nance stopped moving, and his head was a bloody mess. I would shot quote. him right in the fucking face. <laughs> Um, but that's just me, right? <laughs> so, obviously, the next thing he did was call 911, right? <laughs> um, and Doug, Chris, and Nance were all rushed to the hospital. Nance died the following morning, and good. Um, <laughs> Doug, both Doug and Chris survived and made a full recovery. You love a positive which is story, insane. Yeah, yeah. Little positive twist. Mm-hmm. So, although he was dead, um, authorities still launch an investigation into, right. you know, a lot of times you it's like, mm-hmm. if he did this, no, he probably There's did no this There's no way before. that's the first
0: time, right? Right, yeah,
1: Because right. <laughs> um, that was too executed.
0: You know what I mean? Yeah. It wasn't
1: sloppy. Separate
0: no. him, tie him in a specific manner. There's yeah. got to be a
1: pattern. <laughs> yeah. So they were still investigating what potential crimes that he could have done. Um, and when they started, when they started searching his home – they found out, actually, this was not the only time that Nance had perpetrated this kind of crime. Mm-hmm. Um, they were able to find photos of Marcella Bachman, whose remains had been found in 1984, mm-hmm. along with many photos of Chris Wells in a very stalker scrapbook. Oh, my God. That was like, it even had what like, say? I love you. What do we say about You this? and me forever. Stop. And it's like photos that he had taken of her while she wasn't looking, this you know what I mean. Like,
0: like every other episode, someone's keeping diaries, writing notes, right? a literal
1: soccer uh, scrapbook. Like, why, <laughs> why? Um, so that was creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, they knew that he was guilty of attacking Chris and Doug Wells, um, because well, he died there.
0: Yeah. Um, <laughs> but lots of evidence. Yeah. <laughs>
1: And they were also able to link Nance to Donna Pound's murder thanks to additional evidence that they found at his Mm -hmm. home. Um, Nance is also definitively responsible for the murder of uh, Michael and Teresa Shook as they have – I mean, it was, like, evident by the same type of crime. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was, like, a very similar thing. So they are like, yep, he's responsible for that. Many of the other murders he is – either suspected of or is the only suspect in the case. Mm -hmm. So some of those domains that I've mentioned earlier, like, he's kind of really the only suspect. Mm -hmm. Although they can't definitively say that he he is responsible. Um, And that's the case uh, with Devana Nelson and Janet Lee Lucas. I mean,
0: I hope they took his DNA and, like, kept it so that if they find any more bodies...
1: (laughs) I hope so, too. I mean, this was... Late 80s, right? Because, like... 86.
0: The Montana wilderness is vast and you can hide... Yes. ...so many bodies.
1: Literally. And, I mean, clearly he was, like, in the same areas. Like, he didn't really leave... Some of these happened in areas that he was in while he was serving the military. So, like, Mm -hmm. that's kind of the thing, too. But, like, it's it's not like he was going from coast to coast. Yeah, same with, like,
0: my guy, like he was in the military. He served at a bunch of bases in California, which hello, 1960s, late 1960s, early seventies, California. How many serial killers were popping off? He probably did so many more crimes. Literally.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, that's a really good point. I hope that they had the foresight to do that, but like, I doubt it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Montana, Belize. (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately with Nance dying in his final attack, uh, He was never able to be held accountable for his crimes or confirm any of the suspicions that police have. So that's thing in the (laughs) curse. Yeah. That's the story of Nance, Wayne Nance. Now, the reason I picked this Mm -hmm. is because a couple of the murders that he is pretty much the only suspect of were originally attributed to Meinhofer. (laughs) Aha. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure which one. I think it is uh, the 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 two that the were teenagers. Yeah, the two yeah. teenagers. Um, but he was like ruled out after they found out about uh, Wayne Nance. Mm-hmm. So I happen to see that I'm looking and I'm like, I wonder if Janelle ever mentions him in this. Episode. You know what <laughs> I mean? Um, so, yeah. So some of the murders that Meinhofer was accused of are originally thought maybe he had perpetrated where right. I now actually attributed to Nance mm-hmm. which I thought was kind of interesting and um, the Mormon fact what Mormon fact oh let's I see you, you got a good one, one. I I'm fact. trying to decide like what is a good one so um,
0: people who are no longer in the Mormon church who are like still kind of delicate about broaching that with other people who might still be in the church mm-hmm. will signal you if they're no longer mormons by ordering a coke interesting because you can't have caffeine if you're a mormon yes yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's like a safe way of being like
1: yeah wink. a wink wink yeah. i'm
0: not in the church anymore yeah wink, wink. i mean we could have talked about
1: we could have talked about like soaking oh yeah but i mean we don't need I'm, to talk about to that talk
0: about that with beau and like we
1: don't need to talk like, about no. that
0: no, we're not. I'm like, but it's so
1: weird, isn't yeah, it's it? So and he's like, weird. we're not talking. If about you want to know what we're these. talking about, Google Mormon, comma, soaking. It'll be everything you need to know. God weird provides shit ever. a loophole. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, why don't you check out this podcast? A literal loophole. Oh, my no. God. <laughs> Ew. You're welcome. Need an escape? Vanish into the depths of a magic forest. Head out on an interstellar repair mission. Travel back in time to change the future. Explore inside someone or something else. Meet dragons, werewolves, birds, bears, aliens, mermen, and a man with a fishbowl for a head. All in 10 minutes or less every week. Tune in to 600 Second Saga for your weekly science fiction and fantasy escape. Soaking is like the weirdest thing ever. It is How is that even like nice though? I don't know. Ugh. I don't think it is. Anyway, (laughs) that's our show for this week. I mean, when you're that thirsty, I guess. (laughs) Thirsty for God. Uh, Jill, do you have any closing thoughts before we finish up today? I don't know.
0: Always say strap when you're in Montana?
1: Always stay (laughs) strapped. Get, get.
0: All right. In Montana, because, you know, wolves, bears, and murderers.
1: The three (laughs) big ones. The three big ones. The three B's. Mm hmm. Wait. (laughs) You know. Wait. I said wolves, bears, and murderers. Yep. There's only one B. There's all (laughs) B's. Okay. Wolves, bears, and murderers. Wolves, wolves, bears, bears. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, we're clearly losing (laughs) it. Tell we need to go. It's very (laughs) time. Yeah, it's very much time for us to go. So, our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zakshefsky. The Enigma. This has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. We will see you in two weeks. Goodbye. Bye, folks. (laughs) Bye, folks. Don't come back now. You here? Wait, no. Do come back now.
0: (laughs) Never come come back now. As if a wave of evil washed over this town We are all evil We're in some form or another